Welcome to episode 507 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature the first part of a three-part series coming from one conversation I had recently with time experimenter and artist David McDermott. He also is part of the artistic collaboration McDermott and McGough. We've had Peter McGough, the other half of that collaboration, on several times. And now, Mr. McDermott. In this first installment, we talk about his childhood, magical thinking, the positive past, the idea of utopia, King Charles, Syracuse to New York City, being a time experimenter, and his millions, among other things. A grand conversation with David McDermott, part one. We also have an EW essay titled On Cobblestone Streets. We share an excerpt from the book Your Brain is a Time Machine by Dean Bonomano. And we have an EW poem called With Coffee. All of this, of course, is infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. So nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 507 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Oh, and by the way, happy birthday, Mr. McDermott. Thank you. 
on cobblestone streets. Life is weird, much weirder than me, though maybe life to me is as weird as I see it. The desire, or perhaps need for fantasy, is relief, a reprieve, rescue. Music and dance and dreams, television, books, magazines, theater. I'm not quite sure about where I come from, where I be, where I am headed. Came from nothing, then connected to something, family, community, time. Back to nothing, detritus, after arthritis, smiling faces, happiness and love. I am uncomfortable to hug and kiss. Dancing near the marshes of a northern island off the coast of forever. Tides ebb and wane into a smooth, brisk meditation of many lives lived and endured until the voices of sweet song and screams from within and outside surround a fleeting existence of one, two, one hundred, thousands, millions, billions, all fundamentally the same, and then one day are strong enough to see and transcend the game into a state of joy, strength, integrity, soulfulness of knowing something more than oneself into the glory of the sunlight.
Hello, this is David McDermott. Hello, David McDermott. This is Lawrence Pugliese. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Well, it's an honor to be here for this interview. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. And uh, I'm uh, wondering if I could uh, share a little bit of background before we get started. Well, before we get started, I would just like to make an announcement that I'm a very good reader. I'm always reading. And I'd like to recommend as the only book that I think that people should read. And it's Prince Charles's book, Harmony. And he spent his whole life trying to figure out the world. And in this book, which he writes in a dumbed-down way for the ordinary populace, he basically explains what's happening on planet Earth. And and is this uh, something that you came across by chance, or or uh, this? particular book or something that was recommended to you? How did you come across it? Well, it, it was recommended to me. An eccentric on the street recommended that I read the book. And it took me a while to read it because he wrote it with a consortium. Anyway, I just wanted to say so because, you know, King Charles has a bad reputation, but he was absolutely ahead of his time in warning about the environment and pretty much the collapse of civilization. Yeah, I, I'm aware of his uh, concern about the environment. I agree with you. He is sort of ahead of his time there. Well, thank you for the recommend, recommendation, Mr. McDermott. And My pleasure. Let me, let me uh, share with uh, the folks some of uh, the background I have compiled. There's so much. We'll get into it when we converse. But basically, David McDermott is an artist, an actor, and director known for the films Rome, The Long Island Four, and Basquiat. David is also one half of the artistic collaboration known as McDermott and McGough, consisting of visual artists David McDermott and Peter McGough. They are known for their work in painting, photography, sculpture, and film. David moved to Ireland in the 1990s, and he is presently involved with several projects, including two films. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program David McDermott. So, David, um, I'd, I'd like to start with your background. I know you were born in Hollywood, California. And then you ended up in Syracuse, right, to New York City. You want to sh fill in some of the, the blanks in between all that? Well, my mother wanted to be a screenplay writer, so I was pretty much carried in Hollywood. I was born at the Glendale Hospital, and she lived on Beverly Boulevard. But three weeks after I was born, I was in Passaic, New Jersey, being looked after by my grandmother, and my first bed was in the drawer of a chest of drawers and uh, I'm I'm really not an artist I'm a time experimenter and I always wanted to be a time experimenter the artist is about a profession that allows me to work on my time experiments Time, yeah, the time experiments that you mentioned are very fascinating to me, and uh, you know, I 
one of the things I became aware of, uh, given some of the work you've uh, embarked on in in your uh, years in New York and maybe still to uh, this point in Ireland, was living sort of in a in a different um, time, and the the time you chose was Victorian, basically when you were in New York City with Mr. McGough. Uh, you wanna you wanna explain. Why you chose that time, and what do you mean by time experimenter? What what is so fascinating about time to you? Well, let's face it. There's been a lot of experimentation and accomplishment in terms of the conquest of space, but there isn't any talk of experimentation with time. Now, to fly, they made these contraptions and they pushed them over cliffs. They were flight experiments. And I just believe that there should be extraordinary time experiments going on in the world. Um, I, I was born in 1950 and that was basically the tail end of the earlier period. I mean, I think that the 19th century was really from 1856 to say 1956. And we're now in the, the 20th century. We just moved into the second half because you might have to remember that time doesn't change at January 1st um, of the new year. Uh, it takes them years to retool the machinery in order to create the new decade. And it's the same with centuries. I mean, if you you know your history and you think about the American Civil War was really the beginning of the modern wars and World War II was the last of those old-time wars. Uh so I'm interested in in pre-World War II time. And uh, it basically, the more money you have, the farther back you can go in time. I mean, it's more expensive to recreate the late 19th century than it is to recreate the early 20th century, and so forth. Now, now I would be fairly familiar with the 19th century, even the early 19th century. And I, I know the 18th century. But then it gets vague for me, even though I'm always reading. Is there not enough information about the, those uh, periods of time earlier? Uh, that you're you're having difficulty uh, grasping as much, or is it just uh, something so foreign the way that life was back then that you can't conceptualize it? It's just requires a good amount of money to experiment in earlier time periods, um, and it was always easy for myself and my friends to experiment with um, the early 20th century. 
I mean, when I was coming up in New York, my friends were all involved with the 1920s and 30s, which really was only about 30 years away from where we were. Now, I've met some young people here in Ireland. Uh, one of them's 19 and the other's 22. And they're devoted to the 1920s. And um, they dress that way. They want to know all about it. I find that a lot more fascinating. I mean, there are people, young people that are interested in restoring the 1970s and the 1980s. And I'm really not interested in that. But imagine this 19-year-old and this 22-year-old that I've met here in Ireland that are devoted to the 1920s. Yeah, it, um, 100 years ago. You know, they're just kids now, relatively speaking, and they're more interested in 100 years past than present day. And, uh, you know... I mean, when I was coming up, I could, I could smell the 1920s it was so close you could meet the people who were from that time period and i did and there were interiors that were completely intact every town i would visit i would go searching for old mummified shops and such well when i was young i had magical thinking and i thought i could find a portal to the past and there was at one point where I thought they were in the back of old Jewish um, clothing shops. And why did you think that? They, because the backs of these um, old shops, they were, they were more old-fashioned than the fronts of the shops, and they'd be piled up with all the old merchandise. And, uh, it's called magical thinking. Children have it. And I made a lot of early experiments. And I'll tell you, I'll admit it to the general public. I mean, I've been completely unsuccessful. What are you I trying? I have never found a portal to the past. And that's why I don't use the term time traveler. I use the term time experimenter. So it's about finding a portal to the past. That's, that's what you're, you're uh, trying to, to uh, accomplish. Well, that's what the physicists should be doing is, um, and I, I met a, a young physicist, he's 25, and I was telling him, I said, even if you just pretend that you've discovered it's better than what's going on. Listen, let me tell you a funny story. This um, professor came from Princeton to lecture on time travel at a science museum here. And I went to that lecture and I had a cylinder phonograph and I made a great effort to give the impression that I was there to hear. And he said that his concept was if you build a spaceship the size of the planet Earth and you send it at the speed of light to the farthest corner of the universe, that when it returns, it will be one half second into the past. And I went backstage and I said, that idea isn't any good. <laughs> you need another idea. I said, that's the same as a balloonist going to Louis XIV and saying, if you allow me to build a balloon the size of France, I'll be able to lift it off the ground one inch. 
Yeah. What's so compelling about that accomplishment, right? Yeah, there's nothing. I mean, he would have been absolutely refused. I mean, his idea that came out of Princeton University, I mean, maybe it is scientifically authorized, but it's an absolutely stupid idea. I mean, I have ideas for time experiments. Well, I, I, I'm curious as to what the fascination is in terms of... Well, are in- you kidding? Look at your own life. It's all about mortality. It's so many decades, and then you die. This has been the dream of mankind from the beginning, to um, to, to live forever. So and, go, going back in time would give you more time? Well, you're saying going back in time. And what I'm saying is that all time should exist at the same time. Ah. And that this whole idea of abandoning time and then taking an axe and doing your best to chop it up, that this is a out-of-date way of thinking. I hear you, I, and I, I sort of agree. It, it kind of goes, I think, a little bit with Eastern thought, you know, when you talk about being present in the moment. The, there is no past, there is no future, there's only right now at this moment. Do you find that to make sense? Does that fall in line with uh, your interests and your understanding of, uh, regarding time? Well, there, there's that book um, where it was talking about living in the now um, was very popular about 10 years ago and i experimented with the idea you know living in the press and that idea doesn't work if you have to wait on a bank queue you're going to be bored out of your mind i remember walking along uh, a river um a good long walk and I was trying to just be in the moment. It's so boring. Fantasy and dreaming and allowing your thoughts to wander, that's what keeps us alive. Yeah, I agree. Now, we've we've uh, sort of messaged each other back a, a couple of times before we spoke. And uh, you mentioned the failed utopia. Is this connected at all? The idea of... Is utopia being able to garner and grasp time in the way that you are, are, are talking about? Or is that something totally separate, this idea of utopia? And why has it failed? Well, I actually don't know what you're talking he about. Um, I think that my former partner, Peter, might have talked about a failed utopia. But I, I, don't, I don't think in those terms. Definitely not. You don't think in terms of utopia? Well, I love utopia, but I don't think about it as being failed. I don't think of it that way. Do you think about failed utopias? I mean, I don't. I I don't even, I'm not even sure what utopia is, you know, I mean, is it nirvana? Is it, is it when everything is just right and there's no trouble is that even well, realistic? I immediately think of the Pullman company and their Pullman cars, and they set up this utopic factory town. Maybe it was in Pennsylvania. And that, to me, was one of the utopias that 
thinking people were trying to organize such places at the turn of the century. I think Kellogg's was involved with that. Um, but um, it's a difficult concept for me. The whole idea of utopia, and sometimes I'm critical of Western thought, you know, although I'm a Westerner, uh, regarding, you know, everything being just right, getting everything you want always, you know, never being pleased with what you have in front of you. And, and this whole idea of utopia is, is a manifestation of that, in my view. You know, we're, we're not, it's not good enough. Now, people are oftentimes terrible. And the way that we function as society oftentimes is misguided and warped. I, I would say I, I would say that's true. But nonetheless, what you know, what's this idea of making everything perfect? Is that what we're talking about here? Trying to control by understanding time and and and, and trying to make everything unrealistically perfect? I'll say that I'm not interested in restoring the negative past. I'm only interested in the positive past. And I believe that a future is composed of the positive past and the positive present. But when you look at the corporate consumerist society that we live in, it just seems as if they're interested in demolishing the past completely. Well, that's what the futurists were up to, you know, going back to 1900. I mean, they wanted the past destroyed because they saw until that was achieved, human beings would not be able to progress. That memory was trapping them. So, um, I mean... You obviously don't know that much about the past. Um, otherwise, I mean, it's so fantastically marvelous compared with the present. Because? Just because it is. Because there was so much effort and thought put into the contriving of their material world. Mm. I mean, when they hung a door, they thought this door is going to be here for all time. So if we're going to put the door in. It has to be put in perfectly. And that's the way everything was being made until after the Second World War, when this concept of the throwaway society came about. And that's from Sigmund Freud's nephew who said that as long as people are buying things, they're happy. It was the answer to why Germany, who had, 11, who had nine of the 11 industrial cities and had the largest middle class and they were the most educated, why they would become fascists and support Hitler. And it was, Freud's nephew said it's because they couldn't shop anymore. Their money was completely devalued, and they couldn't shop. So after the war, that's all people are. And the reason why everyone started wearing synthetics is because DuPont gave away 
free cloth to all the designers. And, you know, they couldn't say no to that. And it destroyed the woolen, the linen, the silk, and the cotton industry. You know, completely destroyed those industries. And synthetics are so horrible. Well, everybody knows, you know, they're just floating around in the ocean. And all these synthetic coats that people are wearing now, it's just horrible. They're just, people have to think about what's going on. And, and it's well known how impeccably you dress. And you, from my understanding, look for, I guess, for lack of a better word, vintage clothing, I, I, I presume. Stuff that is made in that earlier time period that we're talking about. Is that the case? And where do you find these clothes? Well, you know, this was a question you could have asked me, I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago. It's very different now. But um, the issue is you can take the good quality clothes that, are are still in the charity shops and you can reconfigure them. I mean, in the past, 75% of men could, could sew. And uh, the only time children could spend with their, their parents was when the mother would be sewing. Sewing is very important. And the sewing machine actually made sewing um, so objectionable because they had to spend, you know, their whole lives at these machines <laughs> sewing, and they never wanted to sew ever again. But my mother and my grandmother, they they made all their own clothes. Yeah. My mother told me dress every day because you never know where you'll end up. And the thing about when you're invited to a dinner party. You don't need to bring some stupid flowers and a bottle of cheap wine. You need to dress because when you dress, you, that's the greatest compliment you can give your host. You're saying, I'm going to help you make your party a, a better party. I'm going to make it look better. I was doing that when I was in high school. Let me ask you, what are you wearing right now as we speak to get a visual of you? Um, I've taken off my um, 1928 um, very heavy uh, wool jacket, and I've taken off the matching waistcoat. I have the trousers on with suspenders holding them up, and I have this plaid shirt with an artistic wool um, necktie. It's a regular necktie from the 20s. Extremely moth-eaten, but I have it tied around in an artistic way. You know, because it's for your radio show. I, I want it to be comfortable. It's very cold here. And you're in uh, a village in Ireland. Is it uh, near Dublin? I'm in Dublin. I'm at my friend's house, and he has all this technology that allows me to talk to you. And I appreciate James... Uh, setting this up, and maybe uh, James could take a photo of you at some point today and send it to me. That way I can use it when we're sharing this conversation with the world. They can see exactly how you we were dressed while we were speaking. If that's possible, that'd be great. Now, well, how are they going to see it on the radio? 
Well, when I market the uh, broadcasting of this show, I always have a photograph and a summary of, of the conversation. So that's how that's when I would use it, through the marketing uh, via social media and the like. 30 years ago, I had a radio interviewer from Sweden, and he came to visit me in Dublin, and he lived at my house with me for about three days. And he made this interview about time experimentation and it's very good and i think they still play it on your national public radio did you ever hear it i haven't mr mcdermott but i will look for it i will look for it for sure maybe one an absolute american accent even though he was from sweden that's interesting um now he'd be old now he'd be yeah but he was young when he came I think it was about 30 years ago. And how old are you now, sir? Well, you know, in the past, they always lied about their age and said that they, you know, they'd be younger than what they really were. But I already told you. You are born in 1950. Born in 1950. Yeah, that's true. We have to do our math, I guess, to figure that one out. All right, folks, do your math. Well, it's very easy to do that. (laughs) Mathematics. Yeah, but with calculators today, people don't know how to crunch those basic numbers, I've found. Uh, but uh, you're right. We can do it in our heads. Now, let's shift gears a bit. You know, uh, we're getting pretty philosophical and a bit historical. Let's get specific to a place and a time. New York City in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. Some of the folks, some of the projects, some of the things you were doing back then, you want to share a little bit? Like, first of all, how did you get from Syracuse, where you studied, University of Syracuse, to Manhattan? What prompted you to go there? Well, I went to the Art Academy at Syracuse University, and you can look it up on your computers, um, Krauss College, and it was a Huge brownstone. It's still there. This huge brownstone castle that sat on the top of the hill. And uh, when I went to school, there were still these 1950s abstract uh, painters that were the teachers. But then there were older teachers that went back to the 1930s and they would be teaching that Edward Hopper Um, style of painting Mm -hmm. but I had this one teacher who on the first day told all the girls in the class I was the only boy that it was a very difficult class and they most of them would fail maybe some of them would get D's and I thought oh this is college and there's everything is so difficult and And then he came up and whispered in my ear, you're going to get an A. And basically he said that because I was dressed in a 1900 style with a high starch collar. And he saw that I was the real thing and that these girls, they were just going to college to get husbands. Mm -hmm. So you were studying painting. I, I majored in advertising and I minored in painting. Because my mother, you know, she was pragmatic. And and then once you graduated 
of course you're going to go to New York City. That's where all all the uh, action is, all the energy is. Well, what happened was an artist named Richard Merkin, he was the visiting artist, and I went to his lecture, and then afterwards he came to visit me, and he said, I was content to just live in Syracuse and work on my time experiment. And he said, David McDermott, you have to move to New York. You can be the greatest eccentric of Syracuse and they'll never hear of you in Utica. And that made sense to me. And I moved to New York. I would have moved to New York in the summer of 1973. And what was it like at first? Were you overwhelmed? Were you exhilarated? Well, what it was like, it was 35 cents to ride the subway. And one of the old subways was called the Independent Line, and it hadn't yet been released from contract to the city government. So they didn't do any repairs at all. They only had about five years left on it. And it was completely outmoded with... um, wooden turnstiles and the trains were all old with these porcelain uh, poles to hold and there were cane seats. I mean, I I suppose they have one of them in the the transport museum, but it's only 35 cents. You must have loved it then. It sounds right up your alley. The problem was... I thought it would remain. I, I, I didn't have this concept. I mean, if I found old underwear in a shop that still had their 1920s underwear, I'd only buy enough for me. I didn't think in terms I have to buy all this because it's not going to be around anymore. Mm. So New York changed as you spent some time there in a way that maybe didn't work for you. I was in New York for 20 years. I'd say from 1973 to 93. And and you became a millionaire. You hung out with some of the most influential artists and thinkers in uh, the United States. Well, you're going a little far with this millionaire idea. but That's what I've read. I'll accept it. Well, yeah, that's great. But, I mean... A millionaire, that's a little far-fetched. Oh, not true. Um, You're listening to um, a very positive individual, I suppose. That was our first installment of three of a conversation with time experimenter artist David McDermott. Be sure to tune in for installment two and three presented on Troubadours and Rock On Tours in the coming weeks. Why wait? Be nice. I thought you would. That's great. Don't wait. Be sweet. Gee, I knew you could.
and tell me that you're glad you found me. Come on and put your arms around me. Oh, baby, come on. By looking in your eyes, I surmise this is my chance. I can see this'll be a heavy romance. Come on, because I can't resist you. I won't be happy till I've kissed you. Come on, because I can't resist you. Oh, baby, come on. When I'm beside you, my heart is gone. Come on and let your conscience guide you. Oh, baby, come on. Turn me down when I'm so crazy over you. 
And now we have for you an excerpt from the book, Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time, by Dean Bonomano. And here it is. For their part, scientists and philosophers talk about subjective time, objective time, proper time, coordinate time, side-real time, emergent time, time perception, encoding time, relativistic time, time cells, time dilation, reaction time, space-time, and the rather redundant Zeitgeber or time-giver time. Ironically, although time is the most common noun, there is no consensus on how it should be defined. Indeed, the inherent challenge in attempting to define time was famously captured over 1,600 years ago by the Christian philosopher St. Augustine. Quote, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. End quote. Few questions are as perplexing and profound as those that relate to time. Philosophers ponder what time is and whether it is a single moment or a full-blown dimension. Physicists grapple with why time appears to flow in only one direction, whether time travel is possible, and even whether time exists at all. Neuroscientists and psychologists, in turn, struggle to understand what it means to, quote, feel the passage of time, how the brain tells time, and why humans are uniquely capable of mentally projecting ourselves into the future. And time is at the heart of the question of free will. Is the future an open path or preordained by the past? Time. I'm not one of the greedy kind All of my ones are simple I know what's on my mind I'm not resting until I find What would make your eyes glisten with joy Now listen, big boy I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you, alone. I want to be kissed by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be kissed by you, alone. I couldn't aspire to anything higher than feel the desire to make you my own. Ba 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 ba
Nobody else but you I want to be loved by you Love Some are small like my hand, others as big as the stage, and a sage inside beckons me to reason through the bad habits before my time to bid adieu. A crepe on a light pink plate, crisp and soft, sprinkled with powdered sugar and green moss. <laughs> Thank you. 
there you have it. Episode 507 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, David McDermott. We'd like to thank author Dean Bonomano and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Josephine Baker, Babes in Toyland, Clicquot Club Eskimos, Helen Kane, Isham Jones, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.